This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. J.M. Mira, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Thank you for having me. J.M. is a novelist and a poet who lives and works in the Pacific Northwest USA. Would that be Canada? That would be Canada. That would be Canada. He is the author of Ordinary Monsters, an instant Sunday Times bestseller, and the first book in a brand new trilogy. It's a captivating new historical fantasy novel set in the Victoria world. I mean, it is really, really touching on a genre, isn't it, that is just so beloved at the moment? Yeah. Well, you know, there, there. I think that the the fantasy, especially historical fantasy, but all fantasy right now is going through this in, incredible surge of of creativity and diversity and richness, and and there's a lot more on the bookshelves now than than there's ever been. Why? Well, the, <laughs> I think you'd need to speak to a, a more qualified and smarter person than I am, but I, I think we can trace it back to the sort of people talk about the triumph of geek culture, you know, this moment where geek culture kind of went mainstream and. You know, for me, I think it goes back to the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings movies at the turn of the millennium. And all of a sudden, all of these dwarves and elves and, and rings of power and these things that had been sort of the, the, the secret language of nerddom became the language of blockbuster film, uh, just breaking record after record. And so many people were watching these movies and excited by them. And, and, uh, and I think it sort of really helped reposition those kinds of stories in the mainstream, you know, and in this interesting way, I think, you know, there also must be something to be said about, about a generational shift that also has followed. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people I think who were reading fantasy was really coming of age in the eighties. Uh, it was filling them all bookstores and a lot of kids like myself, I'm sure who were reading fantasy books at that time were really coming of age, you know, 15, 20 years later. And, and now they're middle-aged adults and owning pop culture for what that's worth. You know, um, it's never been a genre that I've read, and I have always, for some reason, always associated with younger people, and they are. They, you know, it's it's a huge YA kind of genre novel. Um, but I've noticed post COVID, a lot of, you know, non YA, a lot of adults are reading fantasy, and I wonder whether we, at the moment, are just sick of what's real. Well, you know, that's really interesting. I'm. I'm a little bit of the mind that fantastical literature isn't shying away from the real, mm. but um, sort of spinning it on its, you know, on its axis a little bit and, and approaching it from from a, a different angle. The earliest literary texts that we have, you know, stories that we've recovered, whether it's it's Homer that's been passed down or 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 Virgil or or even going further back, you know, to Gilgamesh, there, there are they would fall into the category of the fantastic if they mm-hmm. were to be written today. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, but they weren't at the time. You know, they were they were stories very much about 
the world and how to make sense of the world and how to make sense of our place in it. And there's certainly there's a degree of escapism out there for um, some fantasy novels, which is great. But there's also a lot of fantastical literature that is grappling with very deep, rich and profound questions about who we are, why we're here, where we're going. That's that's what I've been thinking about it, the genre itself, that it does really deal with complex dilemmas, complex moral dilemmas, complex problems. And when you're looking around you, and I did say post-COVID, but we're not really post-COVID, we're kind of hopefully coming out of it. But, you know, when you look around you and it's really not all that happy news, it doesn't mean that fantasy novels are happy because they're not, but the way they're presented in a way might, I think, at times be less threatening. Mm, That's really interesting. Mm. I do think that there's two kinds of story. There's the kind of story that's about where you are now, Mm. uh, the stories that are about here. Mm. And I do think there's a second kind of story that's about away. It's about elsewhere, Mm. where you could be, where you might be, where you once were, where you think you might be going. Uh, And it's simply in that definition that I'm offering there, it seems like the stories about away are broader and wider in terms of Mm. variety. And I do think that literature of the fantastic falls mostly, although I won't say completely, but mostly under that category of literature of a way. And, you know, I think if you're exhausted about the here, it's natural to be Mm. looking for stories about other places, other times, different cultures. Do you think when we're reading fantasy, we have a larger appetite for violence, a larger appetite for acceptance, a larger appetite for romance. It just seems to me sometimes they're larger because it's not real, because it's a way, we have a a bigger tolerance. You know, Cheryl, these are really interesting questions. Uh, (laughs) uh, I wish I'd had a second cup of coffee before we sat down. (laughs) What time is it over there? I didn't check that. It's 8.30 in the evening for me. And and the kids are being put to, put to bed, and and I you know normally I would be I'd be drinking more coffee, but it's it's getting a bit late for me. I, you know I I don't know I don't know if I would say that's true. I think that mm. um, well I'll, I'll tell you what I think. I mean I, I I grew up I was a boy in the eighties in the nineteen eighties on the west coast of Canada, and the dominant fantasy series that were in existence at the time were being written by men white men like Robert Jordan or Terry Brooks or Tad Williams. And they followed certain patterns. Uh, and those patterns were patterns of conflict. Mm. Uh, those patterns were patterns of, of challenge. There was the, the, the cliche of the, the chosen one. But, you know, there have always been other kinds of writers writing these stories. You know, there's uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, for instance, from right from the, the, the end of the 60s. She wrote an absolutely marvelous book, uh, a seminal book for me called The Wizard of Earthsea. Mm. And it's not structured in the same way. It doesn't hinge on violence, uh, physical conflict, uh, the triumph of, of, of a character over that character's enemies in the same way. It's a, a, a different idea of a story. Um, and those kinds of stories, stories, fantasy stories written by women have always been out there, uh, just not always, I think, as readily available as they ought to have been. And I think if they had been, I, I don't know that we would be talking about a greater acceptance, thirst, mm. lust, appreciation of violence in such stories uh, if we knew some of the, the, the other kinds of stories as well as we ought to. 
Do you know, when I was a young bookseller, I've been in this business a very long time, and I'm not going to tell you how long because it's too long. (laughs) However, when I was a young bookseller, there really wasn't the genre of YA. You know, it was either kids and, 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 you know, I'm talking about Australia, but I'm also talking about the UK because I worked for some time over there too in bookstores. So it was really children's books and adult books. And the young women that would come in that were between those ages, so maybe they were 15, 16, 17, 18, they would be, for whatever reason, and maybe I did this and, you know, there's some stereotyping here, um, you know, you direct them maybe to Jackie Collins or, you know, some of those books that you kind of thought took them to the other side. But the men, the young men that used to come in, they wanted, you know, you, you would take them to fantasy. And you would take them to Raymond Feist and you would, mm-hmm. you know, that there would be those two little in-between genres, you know, that weren't classified as YA at the time. It's quite interesting, isn't it? It is. You know, yeah. It's it's curious to me how gendered uh, mm. certain kinds of stories can become. Mm. You know, and I, I think we're doing a disservice to a lot of people, a lot of readers out there, especially young readers um, in doing that. You know, I, I when I was a boy... You know, it, I was, mm. I was, uh, I mean, I, I grew up in a, in a small town where I was decidedly different from the other kids around me. Uh, and I was quite isolated and way? very lonely. Well, I, I mean, I was the, I was the one that got picked on and bullied when other kids were getting picked on and bullied, those kids would turn around and pick on me and bully me. You know, I was at the very rock. bottom of the, yeah. yeah you know, so I was. It was it was a difficult time. Uh, grade three, grade four, grade five, and grade six was the worst year. Uh, but you know, speaking with gendered books, I found my my refuge in reading, and it mm. started. I remember it very clearly in grade three and grade four. I, I would just live in this little school library. It was just a little mm. little elementary school in kind it's of a rough area. So good. It's and, such great the, escapism. So great. And but the books I was reading, they were uh, Beverly Cleary books, mm-hmm. Judy Bloom books, mm-hmm. you know, books that that you would perhaps think ought to be gendered towards uh, girls. And and some of them are very much gendered towards girls, you know, like, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. And, mm-hmm. you know, these kinds of stories. But I just devoured them. I was just I was mm-hmm. just reading through the whole shelf. There's I remember the shelf with the different colored spines and I was just working my way through these these mm-hmm. books. And, you know, I think that if I were to have walked into a, a a bookstore, or if I had asked even the librarian, I'm sure I would have been steered towards a different shelf. Mm. Uh, and yet those were exactly the stories I was looking for at the time and I was feeding mm-hmm. off. No, so I, I, I totally agree with you. I think you're so right. I get a little bit, well, bullies, just not the right word, but something annoyed or harassed maybe. Mm. People write, because we've got a pub- public profile here and we write reviews for a newspaper called The Australian. And I get emails from very angry men that I have a female slant in my reading. Mm. And, you know, that only started a couple of years ago. And I could hand on my heart say when I became an adult, I didn't notice gender. I just read what I want to read. Mm -hmm. And until somebody pulled me up, until these guys came at me, I didn't notice it. I think now, particularly with fantasy, particularly, you know, with somebody like you writing under J.M. Miro, It's not gender specific, is it? And I do think young people, they'll read anything. I don't think that that age group in particular are gender specific at all. And I think the younger age groups, we tend to feed it to them, as you were saying. You know, if you had your own choice, what would you choose? Beverly Cleary, maybe. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, uh, as the as the the dad of of young girl and and also a young boy, you know, it's it's interesting to see the way that gender manifests in their lives, the, the choices mm-hmm. that they make mm-hmm. and the choices that seem to be being made around them for them. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's 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 a fascinating minefield. As know. an adult and as an adult reader, do you gender aware of what you're reading? Oh no, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, I. The thing, you know, it's like, I think the way most people sit down in front of a television now and they stream mm. just whatever show they want to watch, mm. I think that's kind of the, our natural state. You know, I think mm. we, we can we can read and respond to thousands of different kinds of stories. And the great strength of fiction is climbing inside a character, a, a, a narrator that's not you. Mm. Uh, and the, the more different it is from you, the more potentially rewarding and rich and, and marvelous that experience can be. Mm-hmm. So gender seems a natural leap to be making, you know, mm-hmm. and yet for some reason we seem to ghettoize ourselves in, in bookstores and in, in our reading tastes in a way that we don't do with say TV shows we like to watch or, or movies we'll, we'll pay for. Well, I, I reckon with the TV shows, half us don't know who wrote the story and who's directing it and, you know, you just don't know, do you? Right. Okay. I want to talk about, so, you know, you loved reading as a child and how it is that you became a writer. You know, was it that when you were sitting in the library hoping not to be bullied, was it then that you thought, okay, when I grow up, I want to be a writer? Did you ever fantasize about that? You know, um, I'm glad you've asked me that uh, because it actually ties into this very project, um, this this new book and this pseudonymous project. I found my refuge in books, as I said. Yeah, you know, I, I I was lucky enough to have a very loving family and and two brothers that I adored, and you know, my my life wasn't misery by any stretch. But going to school was was frightening every day. Um, oh, just, I just six, want to give you a big hug. I'm so sorry. You know, thank happened. you. I I want to reach across time to that little boy and do the same thing. Yeah, you know, and you know, I, but I I was in grade six, and I was lucky enough to have a teacher named Dave Balchin, and that's who this book is dedicated to, actually, although I haven't seen him in 35 years. He took me aside. I think he saw, he was a great teacher, and he saw a boy in need of some kindness. Mm. And he took me aside, and he handed me a book. And that book was A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin. And he had me read it. And it was unlike anything I'd read before. I mean, I was devouring fantasy at the time, devouring those kinds of writers that you'd find in the mall bookstores. But this was something different. Yeah. And I didn't, I won't pretend that I understood it at the time. I mean, if, if you've read the book, it's an extraordinary novel. It feels at once like something timeless and something very, very old. The language is, is quite simple, uh, very clear. And yet it carries this poetic power, this force. Uh, The only thing I can compare it to are writers like Homer Virgil. And if you, if you're lucky enough to read a good translation, Anyways, I read the book. Uh, I finished the book. I won't pretend I understood it, but I understood at that moment that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do that too. I, I, I wanted to write books like that, that had that kind of mystery to them. And that never changed. You know, most of the things I wanted to do when I was, when I was 12 years old, I, I didn't want to do anymore by the, by the time I was 13 or 14. But for the rest of my life, I've never, never once wavered in wanting to be a writer. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And how did that happen to you, writing fiction? Oh, well, you know, it's, it's an interesting crooked path that leads you eventually to something that's standing right in front of you. Do you know, I, it's never, I, uh, it's never, yeah. Never. Right. So I, you know, I hit my adolescence and I did what I think you're supposed to do, which is I I tried on different, different versions, possible versions of myself. I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but I wasn't writing anymore or reading very much. I was, I was being a teenager, but then when I went to university, I enrolled in the writing program there and I got seduced almost instantly into poetry. I had the great good fortune to study under two of Canada's great living poets at the time uh, who were marvelous and and I fell in love with this, with the clarity and power and strength of what a poem can do. You know, up until that point, I'd always thought poetry was was a, something you had to decode, that there's a secret message in it. And, you know, if you were smart enough, you could you could figure out what it was. And and Patrick Lane and Lorna Crozier made it clear to me that it's not that at all. What you're trying to do is articulate the act into language, the actual experience of being alive in the world. Uh, and it was, it was a remarkable moment for me. And I, I set off to become a poet. I, I studied poetry. I, I published a collection of poems. And yet at the same time, I'd never quite given up on prose fiction. And, and uh, my second book was a, I guess you'd call it a post-apocalyptic novel, but it was really, it was a, it's a novel about the first three days after a great earthquake strikes the West Coast, the, the big one that we're waiting for. And some survivors are trying to make it across the city to find each other. And then I published a second collection of poems, two more novels, and and now I'm here. And what were those novels? Well, my second novel was called By Gaslight, uh, and it's set in the same time period as Ordinary Monsters. Uh, it follows two characters, the real-life um, character of, of William Pinkerton, uh, who was the son of the founder of the Pinkerton Detective Agency, and then in alternating chapters, it follows a fictional con man and thief named Adam Fool. And I found this story kind of interesting. I, I, I was reading a biography of William Pinkerton. And what intrigued me a little bit was that he was one of the greatest detectives, private detectives that's ever lived. Uh, he, he put an awful lot of uh, criminals behind bars. And yet he was most comfortable hanging around criminals. And he thought like one. And he had this approach to the world in which the ends justified the means. He was a big man, a violent man, a disturbing man in so many ways. And so I I wrote him as that. I thought it was interesting that somebody with the soul of a criminal would be standing on on one side of the law. And Adam Fool, my my invented con man, was, of course, his, his foil. He was a person on the wrong side of the law but somebody who never believed that the ends justified the means. He was loyal and, and ethical and, and moral in interesting ways. Um, not that he was a good man, of course, because he, he was 
the thief. Um, and the story sort of follows uh, their history, who they were to each other, and it kind of skips back and forward in time. And then my most recent novel, the one that followed that was called Lampedusa, and it told the true story of Giuseppe Tomasi di Lampedusa, the author of a famous Italian novel called The Leopard. Uh, and it tells the story of his writing, writing that book in the last few years of his life. Mm. And that was really interesting to me as well. If you know anything about Lampedusa's life, he was a, a, an impoverished aristocrat in Sicily. And near the end of his life in the 1950s, he sat down uh, and decided to do this thing that he'd always dreamed of doing, which was to write a book, which seems incredibly brave. Mm. Uh, he'd always wanted to do it and never quite had the courage to. He was a very well-read man. And he wrote this book and he fell ill at the same time. And he knew that his days were numbered. And when he finished the book, he sent it out to get it published and it was rejected. And he was growing more ill and he sent it out a second time and it was rejected a second time. And then he, he died, believing the book was a failure. But he begged his wife to try to get the book published, but not at her own expense, if at all possible. Mm. After he died, it, she sent it out again and it was accepted. It was published. It ended up winning the Straga Prize, which is sort of their Pulitzer Prize. And it's, of course, become not only the best-selling novel in Italy uh, since the war, uh, but also what's widely considered one of the greatest works of Italian literature ever. And they're, of course, home to Virgil and, and uh, Dante. So it was quite an achievement. But, you know, as a writer, I, I always thought, what a story. Is that an example of artistic failure or artistic success? Mm. When I'd ask readers, when I'd pose them the question to them, readers would say, well, it's an example of success. I mean, here's an author, a writer who's vindicated in the end. The world came to recognize his genius, his talent. Uh, and isn't that extraordinary? And we have this beautiful book. But when I'd ask writers, they would say, oh, my God, that is such a sad story. That is heartbreaking. That's terrible. Because, of course, he died believing himself a failure. Mm. A lot of painters have had that experience, haven't they? Um, yeah. <clears throat> ordinary monsters. Where did that come from? Well, Ordinary Monsters, which tells the story of children with unusual abilities in the Victorian age, Victorian London, talents, they're called in the novel. It feels a little bit like a swerve, I think, mm -hmm. if you're reading my other work, uh, which is one of the reasons that I think the pseudonym came about. Not the primary one, but one of them. What happened was I, I mean, I grew up on those, these, on fantasy novels. And on the eve of publishing my first collection of poems, so this is 2006, I was feeling very tired, um, dejected. You know, there's this listlessness that takes hold in certain writers, I think, when they no longer have a the big project that they'd been working on to work on any longer. And, mm. and I was feeling that. And I went into a bookstore and I, 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 all I knew was that I needed to find something to read that was profoundly different from, from what I'd been filling my, my head with. And I found myself in the fantasy section for the first time in 15 years. And I, I pulled down a book. It was the first Mistborn book by Brandon Sanderson. And I thought, you know, this is, this is different. You know, I'll, I'll give this a try. And it's different from the poetry. And I read it and something happened to me. I, I just remember reading it and feeling this kind of pleasure in the, in the reading that was so different from the kind of reading I'd been doing for five or 10 years at that point. I was reading it as a reader again, not, not as a writer. Mm. I wasn't 
critiquing the choices or, you know, thinking oh, I would have turned right where that right is turning left or, you know, I don't know what that line of dialogue, I, I wasn't doing any of that. I was just enjoying what I was reading and it kind of recharged me. And I, what I started doing was reading those kinds of books again, fantasy books, literature of the fantastic, but just as a, as a kind of secret pleasure, as a way of recharging uh, from these other kinds of stories that, that I was writing in my, in my brain. And I had no intention at all, none at all of, of sitting down and writing such stories myself. I, that wasn't my ambition. And then as happens, my wife and I had kids and we read to them at bedtime. Mm. And as you said earlier, writing for children is almost overwhelmingly fantastic literature. You know, even if it's not, it, it's always kind of skirting that line. It's awfully close. Mm. And something about the experience of reading them these stories every night and seeing their eyes light up and their their mouths hang kind of half open as they're waiting for you to turn the page to find out what happens next. And, and that look on their face of, of disappointment, resigned disappointment as they realize that the chapter's over, it's time for bed. Something about that kindled something in the writerly part of my brain. And I started the same kind of things that give rise to my, my poetry or my other kinds of novels started happening in the back of my head. I, I would have images or premises or or flashes of dialogue that would that would be rooted in fantastic stories. But if I ever tried to sit down and write them, they wouldn't come out right. It was like they they there's this block, there's something getting in the way of me actually being able to to make a story out of these things, these whatever they were, these kernels. And this went on for several years. And then I started I opened up a file on my computer for these kinds of stories that weren't working. And one day, I changed the title of the file to a pseudonymous name. And it wasn't at first J.M. Moreau. It was a second, a different name. Uh, but then it changed to J.M. Moreau. And something about the act, I don't really understand it. And, you know, I'm, 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 not, a, I'm not a very, I'm not comfortable with, with the, the mystery of, of the creative act. But I, I, <laughs> I, I, I would say that something about writing these kinds of stories under a pseudonym, as if I were allowing myself to be a second self, a sort of possible version of myself. It was like giving my imagination permission to tell the stories the way they wanted to be told. There's a different approach in the telling of a fantastic story from, say, a literary novel about Lampedusa. Uh, and suddenly the stories just started working. They started clicking. And I don't understand exactly what happened. But that's what happened. And then one day, you know, around that time I was driving home, driving the kids home from gymnastics. And, um, and one of those ideas came to me, it was uh, children of powers in Victorian England. And I thought, you know, it just kind of made me smile. Uh, and then I came home and mentioned it to my wife, who's also a writer and she stopped what she was doing. And she looked at me and she said, that one, write that one. And so I did. Yeah, uh, and that's. Did that's you think where it was a genre book? From. Did you think it was a YA book? Did you like at that and or you were just telling the story. Well, uh, I, it certainly it was a it was a genre book. It, it's it's not a YA book. Uh, mm -hmm. I like to think that young readers might enjoy it, um, but maybe not too young. There's some right. some okay. um, adult material and themes in there, um, and it's quite dark. But uh, as far as the, the writing of it goes, it's not. 
I don't find myself writing any book thinking about the genre, where it's going to sit in the, on which bookshelf, in which bookstore. I'm, I'm not thinking those kinds of things. As soon as the writing takes over, I'm dreaming up the characters and, and examining who they are and what they want and where they come from and what they really want. And, and the, the book just kind of happens and takes over. And, and the, the rules that are set up early in the writing for that particular kind of world kind of dictate the way that the story unfolds. So right from the beginning, I had these talents, these children with these unusual abilities, and that immediately changed the kind of story that that I would tell. What um, did you publish, I think, when you handed it in? Oh, well, the, that's a good question. I, <laughs> it is a I, good question. <laughs> I sent it to my agent and with a certain amount, like, I mean, I finished it and I gave it to my wife, who's my first reader and first editor and, and had her read it. And, you know, I sort of, I sort of was a bit shy about it and said, look, I don't really know. What do you think about this? And she read it and she said, Oh, it's, 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 I like it. It's good. Send it to, to your agent. So I sent it off to my agent who's in New York. And I sort of had the same sort of email to her where I said, look, you know, (laughs) this is not at the time I owed another, I still owe another book to some publishers. And I said, this is not the book you're looking for, but this book just kind of took off in me and uh, it's quite different. And from my other stuff. And what do you think? you know, it's okay. Just be honest. And, uh, she wrote back five days later and she'd read the whole thing. She said, I think it's marvelous and I want to send it out next week. So, you know, let's get this figured out. So she was great. Very supportive. So no surprise it became a bestseller. (laughs) Very nice. Mm. Well, congratulations, JM. Wonderful to chat. Um, I really enjoyed your story very much. The book is called Ordinary Monsters. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.